Um, last time I spoke, I watched myself on video after I got home. Well, not that night. And I realized I was rubbing my knees almost the whole time. <laughs> and I thought, that's a nervous habit. And one of my other ones is I have to have a leg moving all the time. I got that from my grandfather. And uh, his leg was, if he was sitting, his leg was moving, bouncing up and down. You know, it was great for babies if you're holding babies. But I think that's a little bit of my ADHD coming out. I wasn't diagnosed with ADHD until I was 40, and the doctor goes, would you like a pill for that? And I go, no, I don't think so. I've managed it for 40 years, not even knowing I had it. I don't think a pill's going to do much for me at this point in time. Anyway, we're in Ephesians 1. I love the book of Ephesians. Um, we just finished it in the uh, Tuesday night men's group, and... I started teaching it here, um, oh, the last time I taught was a while ago. So we get to verse 7 of chapter 1, but that's where I want to start tonight because that's where um, you can't read 8 without reading 7 because it precedes it, and it's one sentence in reality. This wasn't a great place to stop, but I was running out of time, and I've got to be careful of the clock anyway. So if you're all there, we'll start with verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. I love this part. That he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Doesn't that just blow your mind? What a great God we have. The word for redemption that Paul uses in um, verse 7 is means either like the emancipation of a slave or prisoner. And it involves the idea that there's a price paid for that emancipation. And that's what Christ did for us when he came to redeem us. He died on a cross. Um, it's through his blood that we are redeemed and only through the blood of Christ. There's no other way. All these other religions are just made up. They're crazy. I don't even know how someone can follow them. They're so crazy. And, and they disagree with themselves. There's no continuity or, or um, like straight line balance through all of their material. You take Mormonism. That, that's nuts. Because they don't even agree with their own words that their founder wrote in, you know, the founding docu documents like the Book of Mormon or several other books he wrote. He, he's not even in agreement with himself on what he wrote. But you look through the Bible and there's such a, a thread that's so even that you could follow, start anywhere and follow the story of redemption through. And we do that a little bit tonight. Um, Colossians 1, 19 and 20. I think that's going to be up there. Yep. I'll read it off there to save a little time. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. It was Christ that made peace 
with the Father for us on the cross. And, and if you read that first sentence, it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Jesus was fully God, fully man. And that's the only way he could have ever died for our sins. He couldn't, no one can die for your own sins. And that's one of the crazy things about Mormonism. They believe that there's certain sins that are covered under the blood of Jesus, but there's other sins that can only be atoned through your own blood. Like murder. If I was a Mormon and I murdered someone, my life would be expected of me. That's the only way I could pay for the atonement for my sin, which I could never do. If the blood of Christ is, according to them, insufficient to cover murder, how can my blood possibly cover it? It's all through the blood of Christ. And that's the beautiful thing about the gospel. Jesus paid the price for us. He paid it all. There's nothing he didn't pay for on the cross. He paid for every sin to be forgiven, wiped away. All we have to do is confess to him, Lord, I have sinned against you. And as soon as we confess that, it's forgiven and wiped away. Every sin, every sin before, every sin we've done now, and every sin we'll commit in the future. Because we can't help ourselves. We still have the Adamic nature in us. You know, we're following after our father Adam everywhere, unfortunately. And he's, through the devils, the one that seems to get the best of us at times. It shouldn't be a lot of times. The older and more mature we become in Christ, the less and less we should ever fall into sin. But it, it is part of living in this life. And we know we have a hope in the future where Christ will reign and there'll be no more sin, no more temptation, no more evil or evil thoughts. None of that ever again. And it's because of the blood of Christ. This gift of atonement was foreshadowed in Leviticus 17, 11 and 12. And that should pop up here. For the life of the flesh is the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, No one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. This was back in the very beginning when God allowed blood sacrifice of animals to atone for the sin of man was very strict rules about what kind of animal you could use and, and how perfect and, and spotless and blemish-free it had to be. And otherwise, you couldn't offer it to the Lord. God condemned the people of Israel. I think it's in, in um, Malachi. Not Malachi. Um, nope, just... Skip my brain because they were trying to bring animals that weren't clean in for offerings, spotted lambs and, and animals with defects. And God said, no, you can't do that. And the reason why is because all of this pointed to Jesus, the spotless, perfect lamb of God 
that takes away the sins of the world. You know, nothing else does that work. Even in the Old Testament, if you were sacrificing animals, you still had to look forward to the Messiah and have faith in God to be saved. And now we have, we're looking back at the Messiah, seeing the finished, completed work of salvation that he did for us. And it's so beautiful, so amazing. It's such a free gift. We should be just sharing it with everyone we run into because I, I believe time's running short. We're not going to have a whole lot of time to, to work on things in this life. My next scripture is in Matthew, and I'll read it from this version. Matthew 18, 23 to 35. And this is a parable Jesus told about forgiveness. And it's a beautiful parable. Um, it should bring conviction to all of our hearts because at times we all harbor a little bit of unforgiveness. I was just thinking of someone today that I may not have forgiven and for something that happened in the past and I just need to let go of it. And that I did because I was studying this afternoon, going through all my notes and my scriptures for tonight, and it was like, okay, yeah, you're speaking to me, God, through this passage. So I hope it speaks to your hearts tonight. It says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And today's currency, that's going to be millions of dollars. And the whole point of the story is there's no way he could pay it back. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. You know who the master is in the story. It's Jesus. He canceled our debt. We had a debt. But we could not even come close to paying back. And he canceled it for us on the cross. Our debt is gone. My sin debt has been forgiven. And to never be brought up again ever in all of this life or eternity. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which was very minuscule amount of money compared to what this guy owed his master. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. When the master called the servant in, he said, you wicked servant, he said, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured 
This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brothers from your heart. So it's so important for us to forgive. There's other passages, especially when Jesus gives the Lord's Prayer, that talk about, you know, we will not be forgiven unless we forgive others. You know, and I know how much I need forgiveness every day. I can't live this life in perfection. There's no way. It's only by the grace of God can I even face my Lord in prayer or, or through the word. You know, if it wasn't for his grace cleansing me and, and changing my heart from the inside out, there's no way I could be up here tonight. And it's because of his love. I love the old hymn, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. I wish we could bring out more of those old hymns like that sometimes because there's so much theology and depth of meaning to them. But when you think of that, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. I owe him everything. Everything that I am, everything that I have, everything that I will be in the future, it's all his. I'm just a steward of it. And I need to steward it well to bring glory to his name. Verse 8 goes into... Um, See if I can find it here. That he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. You know, the riches of God's grace have been lavished on each of us. If we're sitting here as believers tonight, it's been lavished on us. I, I think of like being lavished on as someone bringing you just great gifts and tons of money and, you know, just pouring it out on you or or standing out on a warm summer day in a pouring rain and just, oh, Lord, this is great, you know. That's how God lavished grace on each of us. In abundance. God's not stingy. He didn't go, well, I don't like you. Here's a little bit of grace. That's all I can stand to give you. It's no, no. He lavished it on us. As undeserving as we are. He lavished grace on us, unmerited favor. We have the favor of God. To me, how do you even comprehend the depth of that favor or understand the depth of that favor that he's given us so generously? And he's done it with all wisdom and understanding. I love that phrase. There's two ways of interpreting that phrase, which I love. And both are just wonderful. The first is that God has the wisdom and understanding and used it to lavish grace on us. Or the other interpretation is wisdom and understanding are also gifts along with the grace that's lavished on. Either way, God has all understanding and wisdom. And you know he used it when he decided to lavish grace upon us. But he also gives us wisdom and understanding too. You know, as gifts. James 
tells us, you know, anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask. And God gives it generously. You know, how many times, I don't know how many times in my life I've had to ask God for wisdom. Because, you know, simple old me, I'm pretty stupid sometimes, <laughs> make some dumb mistakes, and you, you've got to have wisdom to get out of those. And it's God who gives us that wisdom. And he gives us his joy and his peace and everything that comes along with that. Wisdom is the knowledge which, that sees into the heart of things and which knows them as they really are. I like that definition. Wisdom is the knowledge which sees into the heart of things, which knows them as they really are. That's wisdom. The other definition of wisdom I like is um, the ability to apply knowledge to a difficult situation. God gives us wisdom like that. Understanding here, or insight, depending on what version you have, is the understanding and discernment that leads to right action. Once we have wisdom, God gives us understanding so that it can lead to right action in our lives. You know, God enables us to act right. He gives us the righteousness of Christ. We know how to act right. It's only when we get into the flesh and we get into the, the weeds that, you know, we, we make poor choices and poor decisions and forget to glorify God with what he has given us already. Verse 9 and 10. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to do to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. God has made known to us the mystery of his will. Isn't that amazing? Through Christ, God reveals to us the mystery of salvation. And in the Old Testament, they didn't understand that mystery. It was still a mystery to them. They didn't know that Christ was going to come and die on a cross. They'd only had glimpses of what the coming Messiah might be like through the, the prophets throughout the Old Testament. And we have so much more now because we can look back and see what Christ has done. We can see that what was hidden before has now been revealed to us. And it's in Christ. And it's the unlocking of this mystery has now taken place only in Christ. It's only in Christ who, that, who has revealed that mystery to us. And it's so beautiful that his plan of salvation. You know, it's, it's the plan of salvation in the gospel is so simple. You know, when we go out and we talk to people, it takes maybe 15 seconds, 20 seconds maybe, to share the simplicity of the gospel. Jesus died on the cross for sins so that you can be saved and go to heaven and have an eternity with him. That's how simple the gospel is. It's the good news. And, and I love the way um, Oliver talked about it this morning. If you missed it, go get the... Look it up on Facebook or whatever, because 
I just love the way he presents it. And, and I've been out witnessing with Oliver a couple times, and, and I just enjoy the way he presents the gospel to people. And it's just so simple, and it's so beautiful. And this is all according to God's good pleasure that he's revealed this mystery to us. He is pleased to save us. Scripture tells us it's not God's will that any perish. God doesn't want to send people to hell. Hell was created for the devil and his demons, not for people. But unfortunately, there's going to be people that we know and love that have either already gone on and are in hell now or will end up there if we can't convince them of this wonderful mystery that God has given us. You know, my heart breaks for some of the people I know because their life is just going down the wrong path and they don't care. As long as they get to do what they want and to fulfill the desires and pleasures of this life, that's all they want. They're not even thinking about the possibility of an afterlife or what it might be when what happens when you die. That's the one tragedy I see in people not having funerals, and it seems to be a trend now. And usually when you went to a funeral, you heard the gospel because a funeral was done by a pastor who was more than happy and willing to share the gospel. But now people don't even hear that. You know, that's the only time you get some people into a church is a funeral, otherwise, or a wedding. But they don't present the gospel at weddings usually. They just want to get it in and done with and off to their pictures taking and the reception. You know, it's it's unfortunate, but there's such a trend not to have funerals. And to me, that is so sad because so many people are missing out on hearing the gospel because of that. Um, I'm leaving that up to the my relatives. Um, I hope they have a funeral and ask for the gospel to be shared. But anyway... Paul uses an interesting word here that talks about, um, it means administration or like household management or stewardship. Um, and it covers provision and orderly arrangement, which is so interesting because orderly arrangement is the idea behind um, submission. Um, sub the word for submit in, in Greek means to arrange yourself in an orderly fashion underneath doesn't specify underneath what, but we know our submission is to God and to each other because that's what we're told to, to be as believers. And it eventually covers the divine government of the universe. When Christ returns, he's going to rule and reign forever. Um, Paul used it to suggest the putting into effect God's far-reaching redemptive plan. And Oliver mentioned it this morning. I can't remember if he quoted it or read it, but Genesis 3, verse 14 and 15, this is right after the fall. And, and to me, it's wonderful because right after the fall, the main thing God is concerned with is not as much the sin that Adam and Eve committed, but announcing a plan of redemption for us. Isn't that amazing? Let me read that. Um, 
So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. You know, that's the first announcement of the gospel, that Christ the one who's coming is going to be the one that's going to crush the devil's head. And Jesus completed that on the cross when he said, it is finished. He's already crushed the devil's head. The devil is just a squirming little serpent that can hardly do anything. But we still need to be cautious of him because his ways are, are, are tricky. And we need to be aware of it. But he's already been defeated. He's a defeated foe. And I love that idea. Um, Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons and become and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. At the right time, God sent his son into this world to redeem this world. It was in God's timing and God's plan. I'm sure the Israelites would have wished he had come sooner. But even when he did come, they rejected him. But not all. It was just the Jewish leadership. There, we believe that there was well over a million Jews that became Christians before um, Rome conquered Jerusalem. Because if you look at the numbers in history, the Jewish people were well over two million people strong. And just before that war, um, it was only recorded to be about a million Jews. So what happened to them? We know they didn't just all die off. It's because they became Christians. And they were no longer counted as Jews. Because, well, now you can be, I, I love, <laughs> this is one of my pet loves, I love to see a Messianic Christian, someone who used to be Jewish and they've come to the Lord and they still retain that Jewish identity in a sense. But back then, they didn't want to retain that Jewish identity because it was the Jews who had persecuted Christ and it was the Jews that were persecuting the church at this time in history. So I believe that well over a million Jews came to Christ in that time frame because they realized what had happened and why Christ was crucified and that he rose again from the dead. We are living in the Messianic age now. That's a beautiful age to be living in. And we're living in the end times now, too. The end times started at the same time. You know, when Christ came, that was the beginning of the end. And we've been in the end times now for a couple thousand years. And God works in mysteriously in 
seems like 2,000 year increments. And like this morning, if you're paying attention to um, Oliver, you can see that history was broken down into um, 14 generation segments in Matthew 1. All of those segments where, where they go through the history and lineage of Jesus are broken down into 14 generation segments. So for every 14 generations, there was a new time. That first one went from Abraham to David, because David, we know, even though he wasn't the first king, he was God's first choice for king because he was a godly king. The first one didn't work out, and they had to have a godly king that the rest of the lineage could come from. And then the next section was from David to um, the exile of the Jews, and then from the exile to the time of Christ. So, you know, those segments, God loves to break up the history into segments. And, and I believe we're coming to the end of this 2,000-year period where um, God's going to do something different, whether he returns or whether something new starts. Who knows? Um, I hope I won't be around for it. Um, I am getting older, but not that old yet. The Messianic age has to run its complete course until complete fulfillment in God's eternal purpose and plan. And then universal reconciliation will happen when the whole universe is reconciled to God and brought back under God through Christ. It's Christ that will rule and reign over everything when everything has been pulled together and brought under Christ. And that idea where it says to bring together is the idea of like a, a column of numbers that you add up. It's like creating a sum. And it's everything that's going to be coming together to create that sum of God's kingdom. And that's what ultimately Christ is going to rule and reign over that whole kingdom. And it's going to be a glorious kingdom. I can't even begin to imagine what, what it's going to be like. You know, with Christ ruling and reigning, I, I don't know anybody's political affiliation here, but in my whole lifetime, I've never seen a government and a president so incompetent um, doing the most foolish things, endorsing sin, um, poking Russia and provoking Russia to war, poking China, provoking China to war. Have these people thought through what they're doing? It's such incompetence. But I believe it's a message about the times that we're in. You know, it's a time for us to long for that rule and reign of Christ. And when things will be perfect like they were at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, when we have that perfect relationship with the Father, like we can walk in the the cool of the afternoon with him and just spend time in his presence, worshiping him and, and enjoying his presence. And, and what we find for, for work in heaven, I can't wait to see what I'm, I get to do in heaven. You know, it won't be tiresome or tedious. You know, you won't go, Whew, man, it's just too hot here to do this work. Or, man, I hate this job. I wish I could do something different, but I'm kind of stuck here because... I need the money, you know. 
None of that's going to be part of our experience in heaven anymore. It's going to be so wonderful. I just can't wait. (laughs) And all things will ultimately be under the control of Christ. Everything will be in subjection to him. And everything that's not in subjection to him will have by this time been destroyed um, completely. There will be nothing that is not in subjection to Christ. Verse 11. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In verse 12. In order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Um, Christians are chosen. Everyone that's a believer in this room was chosen by God. Everyone. Every one of you was predestined by God to become a believer. God chose us. Why? He knows. All I can do is appreciate it. And I love him for it. How can we not just love God for that? You know, the the Bible tells us before the world began, he knew, he foreknew everyone that would come to him upon the hearing of the gospel, everyone that would come to him. And he chose them and predestined us to be his forever. What a what a place we've been given. <coughs> Israel held that place of being God's chosen people for 3,000 years. 3,000 years before Christ came. That's a lot of years to be the only batch of God's chosen people on all of earth. All of earth. Just one nation that God chose. Others could choose to join them through repentance and baptism. They could come into the Jewish faith. But they had to become a Jew to become one of God's chosen people. Now the church, and I say with a capital C, um, because we know we've all been in churches that um, not everyone is saved, unfortunately, Um To be saved means to be transformed by the power of Christ so that we exhibit the fruit of the Spirit in our lives and the the peace and the joy that only he gives. Otherwise, you know, we haven't been saved if that's not evidence in our life. But we've been brought in and chosen and added to that same privilege that the Jews had for 3,000 years. We have that same privilege in Christ. Chosen people. We're predestined and foreordained. God always knew and purposed to fulfill his plan. Before time began, God marked out those who would receive this privilege. Even before I was born, even before my parents had any idea they wanted a child. I was the middle one. I was born on their third anniversary. (laughs) So anyway, but... 
Even before my parents knew they wanted a child, God knew everything about me, and he'd already chosen me to be his. From before the foundations of the earth, before God even created the earth, he knew each and every one of us and chose each and every one of us. Just let that sink in for a minute. Not because we were special, not because we were more worthy than anybody else, but it's because of God's grace and his love for his creation. You know, verse 12, we believe, refers to the Jewish people. Um, I'll read it again real quick. In order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Now, Paul likes to use the plural a lot. We, um, Jesus did too especially when he gave us the Lord's Prayer. It's all plural. It's all we, our, um, you know, you can't pray that with the I. It's just not natural. It's not the way, you know, Jesus gave it to the disciples. But Paul was a Jew, and the first converts were Jewish. Um, right from the Old Testament saints who, by faith, believed God, and it was credited towards them for righteousness like Abraham, or, you know, the early New Testament believers who were mostly Jews, because the message of the gospel went to the Jews first. And Jesus made sure of that. The gospel really wasn't presented to us Gentiles until after the resurrection of Christ. And the persecution broke out in Jerusalem, and because of the persecution... Um, the message went out to the Gentiles. And they went out into the surrounding towns and villages and, and countrysides and, and different countries and nations and preached the, the good news to the, the Gentiles. So we've been, you know, brought in. And, and also in this verse, there's a, Word missing in our English text, because it would be awkward. But it's the definite article before the word Christ or Messiah. It's in the Christ or in the Messiah. We, in English, it doesn't make too much sense to put it there. But the definite article defines Christ as being unique and not like any others. Like if I had two balls up here and I said, um, pick a ball. One was green, one was red. You wouldn't know which one I was thinking of for you to pick, would you? But if I said pick the red ball, you'd know exactly which one I wanted you to pick. That's why the definite article is important to distinguish between the, the indefinite article, which is just the, the letter A, A, or the word A. It's hard. It's a letter, it's a word, it's both. But, you know, so... It speaks of a very specific, unique one, which is the Christ, the Messiah. And also, as in verse 6, if you look at verse 6, it says, The purpose or result is the praise to his glory. 
Three times Paul's going to say that. He's going to say it in verse 6. Oops. In verse 6, 11. I'm still here. <laughs> 6, 11, and 14. In this short passage, it's all to the praise of his glory. Not, not to the praise of our glory. Not to our praise. Not to anything that makes us special or different. Except, you know, we've been chosen. But... It's for his glory, not our glory. We'll be glorified someday, but not in this life. And we shouldn't look for it in this life because we're to be humble. I don't know what happened, but it was like, it's good now? Okay. <laughs> anyway, hopefully it won't happen again. But we're to, we're to be here. Part of our life, part of our existence is for his praise and his glory. You know, he saved us for his glory. It benefits us. Of course it benefits us. We get to share in that benefit, but it's for his glory. He's the one that paid the price. He's the one that did the work of salvation. I didn't do the work of salvation. I can't do any work for salvation. There's nothing... I could do to earn salvation. I could do like all the good works I could possibly think of, but one sin would wipe them all out. You know, one sin. And I think a lot of people are so deceived because they think, well, if I can just do more good works than bad works, God will take me into heaven. And if he doesn't, I don't care. You know, I've heard too many people say that. And it's like, Really? You're willing to risk an eternity in hell for that? No way. Verse 13. We'll get through this tonight. I think. We got till 7.30, right? Okay. I won't take all that time. I'll spare you. <laughs> Verse 13. And you also were included in Christ... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory again is the ending. The last phrase in that, that passage again. Third time and in well, between verses 8 and 14. Can you imagine that six, seven verses? To the praise of his glory is repeated so many times. Paul knew it was for the praise of his glory, not my glory, not my attention, not, not anything about me. It's for his glory. The you in this verse definitely applies to Gentile believers and, and those Gentile believers were in Ephesus um, and Gentile believers now. We can take these promises as ours. They belong to us as believers, and, and they're so great. <clears throat> to be included in Christ, to have that same footing as Jews had had in their coming to Christ, and in their entire history of having faith in God, because um, their salvation came through 
faith and belief in God. <coughs> Excuse me. And I love the idea that Paul is talking about them hearing the word of truth. You know, we know that um, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes from hearing. That's why we assemble week after week, time after time, to hear the word of God taught. I love listening to the word of God taught. I love reading it. I love teaching it to myself. But it's in the hearing that really changes us and increases our faith. You want more faith? Hear the word more. Hear the word more. I, I don't know how many times I've thought, you know, sometimes we can be really, really faithless in our walk with Christ. And, and I think he, he wants and expects so much more out of us. But, you know, he still loves us. And he's still willing to care about us and forgive us for our, our shortcomings and failings. He's just so good to us. It's his goodness and kindness that leads us to this repentance. And it's the hearing of these people that they acquired faith when they were able to hear the word of truth. And that word of truth was the gospel of their salvation. How many people here grew up in church? And receive the Lord in church. So there's like three or four, five. How many heard the gospel because someone loved them and cared enough about them to share the gospel with them? That's the majority. You know, I had the privilege of growing up in church in a Christian family. There's so many people don't have that privilege. And they enter into a life of, of debauchery and terrible sin. And I look at, you know, you know, some people have the testimony of, you know, what God delivered them from and drugs and, you know, alcohol and, you know, wife beating and everything else has gone on in their life or whatever it is. But I look at my life as what God has kept me from. You know, and I appreciate that so much more than someone's, you know, incredible testimony. I love testimonies. I love incredible testimonies. But I appreciate God's keeping, saving grace in my life and, and keeping me from drug addiction, keeping me from immorality and all of these other things that God has done for me. And, you know, it's it's hard sometimes to understand what some people have to go through before they'll come to the, the gospel and become a Christian. These Gentiles embrace the message of truth. The gospel is good news. And as Gentiles, they had a place in God's redemptive plan. God has a, a redemptive plan for all of us. Because we've been chosen. And for us to have been chosen, he has to have a plan for us. You know, and if you want to know God's will, everything you need to know about God's will is right here in this book. You know, I, I know so many people that struggle. I don't know God's will for my life. Well, have you read this book yet? <laughs> you know, there's so much he tells us that's his will. It says, well, none should perish. But... Obviously, we know some will. It's his will that we worship him and that we have joy and that we have peace. 
that we have the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. That's what his will is for us. Paul wrote, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice, um, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Rejoice. You want to know what God's will is? Rejoice. You know, you're getting there. You know, and once you start obeying and following God's will that he reveals to us, he'll give you the specifics about what God wants you to do with your life. And a lot of times I don't believe he has a specific plan for what he wants us to do. He wants us to have joy and peace. You know, he's not going to make us work at Walmart if you're not going to have joy and peace there. Because he loves us too much. We may have some trials in life. Paul certainly had trials in his life. God definitely had a calling on Paul's life. And God even said, I'll show him how much he must suffer for the sake of the gospel. Could you imagine going into ministry knowing that was what you had to look forward to? But the difference is Paul had that encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. You know, and that's what we need. We need to have that encounter with Jesus. And the easiest way to have that is through this book and through prayer and time spent on our knees, crying out to him. And that's when Christ is going to just reveal himself to us in, in such a beautiful way. When I came this afternoon here, you know, I'd been in prayer this afternoon and, uh, you know, some time going through my study notes and, and the scriptures and everything. And, and in that time of prayer, um, I, I don't know how to explain it, but it's almost like a trance where you're praying and you get so deeply involved in your prayer that it feels like you're physically almost paralyzed and like you, you wouldn't be able to move a hand if you had to. It just feels like there's just a weight there, a weight of glory or whatever it is. And, and you know, when you're done praying, you can get up. You know, you're not paralyzed. But it's just that that powerful feeling when you get deep into prayer with the Lord. And I think that's what he desires for all of us, to have that, that depth and that level of prayer where we just like just zone right out and just zone into him alone. And he's the only thing that's in our mind and in our focus. And you get such great peace through that. It's such a powerful time of prayer when you, you have a time like that. James 1, 18. Is that coming up? James 1, 18. Thank you, brother. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be kind, a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You know, where his first fruits? That first part of the harvest that's brought in and usually given to the priest as an offering. You know, everyone who had, well, everyone was part of that agrarian culture and they always had the first fruits. That first and best part of the harvest you always brought to the Lord. And that's what Jesus is doing with us. He's bringing us as first fruits to the Father. Isn't that amazing? Where that 
first and best of the harvest. Not that we deserve to be. I have to keep saying that because sometimes it, it could easily go to our heads if we started thinking about how special we are to God. We are extremely special to God, extremely special. If we weren't special, he'd have never died for us. He'd have let us wallow in our wretched sinfulness. But we're extremely special to him. And we're also sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. I, I just love this whole thought that, you know, when we come to Christ, after hearing the word, after believing the word, and accepting Christ as our Savior, we're immediately sealed by the Holy Spirit. Sealing meant important things. Like if I were in those days to send a document written by my hand, I'd fold it up, close it, and put my seal on it, saying this is an authentic letter, and it's sent to a specific person for them only to see. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. We're deemed authentic believers if there's been a transformation and change in our lives. Sealed to become authentic. It was also used to put on um, goods to indicate ownership. We're owned by God. He owns me. I don't own myself. He paid a great price to own me. I'm not my own anymore. And I appreciate that so much. Because on my own, I'm not a great person. I'm not a good person. But because of the work of the Holy Spirit and his sealing, he lives in me. He speaks to me. He guides me, directs me, gives me wisdom, intercedes for me. The Holy Spirit always intercedes for us, just as Jesus always intercedes with the Father for us. The, the Holy Spirit living in us is praying for us and sometimes praying through us. You know, we are sealed. We're possessed by God. And it designated a service or office or position. You know, only important people sealed things. You know, poor people didn't have enough to put a seal on, let alone afford to have a seal made, because it was very expensive. So it had to have been someone in a position of authority or wealth that would do the sealing, and that's who God is to us. He's our authority. He's the source of all wealth. He, he is our inheritance and we are his inheritance when you think of it like that. Verse 14. Who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is just a deposit. The Holy Spirit that we have now is just a deposit or down payment for what's coming. When you buy a house, you put a deposit on it, hoping someday you're going to fully own that house. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He sealed us. 
He's in us as a deposit of our belief in God, our belief in Jesus Christ. He's that down payment. And when you think of the down payment, it's a very small part of the overall cost, isn't it? Very small part. We know that cost has been fully paid. But can you imagine what it's going to be like um, when we have the fullness, all the fullness of God, and not just the deposit? Jesus purchased us with his blood and gave us the Holy Spirit as evidence of our faith and as a deposit or promise of what is to come. You know, he's our guarantee of what is to come. How glorious that's going to be someday when we're fully redeemed. I always like to say, I am saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. It's a process. I am fully saved because I have the Holy Spirit in my life. I'm in the process of being saved because the ultimate salvation is going to come when Christ comes, when we receive our full, full redemption. What a glorious day that's going to be. When there'll be no more tears, no more sin, no more thought of sin, no more evil thoughts, no more evil desires, no more coveting. How many times do we just look at something and go, oh, I wish I could have that. I wish I could afford that. You know, it's so easy to covet. Even at my age, when I know better, it's still easy to covet. You know, I'll look at that new truck. Oh, I like the new body design. I'd really like to have that one instead of the one I got now. You know, how, how often do we just Think like that. This deposit can be compared to an engagement ring. An engagement ring is the promise of marriage. And it's given when you get engaged to the person you want to marry. It's kind of a deposit guaranteeing that that marriage is coming. And you still aren't married but you have that deposit. There's going to be a marriage feast of the Lamb where we're going to be married as the body of Christ, not individually, to Christ. Our deposit part is going to be completed. There'll be no more Desiring for the things to come, we'll have all those things to come. They'll be our possession. Christ will be ours fully, and we'll be fully Christ. Isn't that a wonderful thought? He's coming again to take us home. Whether we die still in this life before he returns, or whether he returns while we're still alive, it's going to be glorious. It's going to be so wonderful, it's going to be hard to imagine. And he talks about the redemption of the possession. The possession is us. He's coming to fully redeem us. We will be fully redeemed when Christ returns. To the praise of his glory, again repeated here. 
to the praise of his glory. Third time, it's to the praise of his glory. Not me, not us as individuals. Our glory goes to him. You know, all to him, all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I can't remember the rest of it. I wish I could, but that was a, one of the, my favorite songs growing up. You know, we think of it, you know, we need to surrender all. And my last closing thought here. Imagine that if the Holy Spirit is just the down payment in our inheritance in Christ, how glorious our full redemption will be when we receive our complete inheritance in heaven. How glorious that's going to be. How wonderful. Hard to imagine even now, because I know how wonderful it is having the Holy Spirit. But how wonderful it will be when we're fully redeemed and we have all of God in us. All of God. And we'll be with God for all eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just give you glory. We praise you and we honor your name for you are so good to us, Lord. You give us all that we don't deserve. Our salvation is such a free gift given to, to us by you, Lord. And we know you paid that price on Calvary, Lord. You shed your blood, your own precious blood for us, Lord. You came to, to this earth and humbled yourself and became a baby to be raised by a teenage girl who had never had any children, Lord, and no experience raising children, Lord. And Father, you entrusted yourself to her, Lord, and to think that of what you went through for us and, and the life you lived and the rejection you faced, Lord, and, and then finally death on a cross, hung between two thieves who deserved their death, Lord, but you didn't, but you paid it all ahead for us, Lord. We thank you and we give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.